Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Spiritfarer, developed and published by Canadian studio Thunder Lotus Games. It was released for Microsoft Windows, Mac OS, Linux, PS4, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, and the Stadia, dating this podcast immediately, on August 18th, 2020. <laughs> Stadia's Google, right? They haven't killed it off yet? Uh, I think they're like in the process of killing it off, like the knife is hovering, if you will. <laughs> if you're Google, like, all of your products have a knife hovering above them. <laughs> Very good point. Um, but at any rate, um, you know, I saw this game at first on a Nintendo Direct a few months back and was immediately intrigued by the elevator pitch. Um, but as I understand, we were playing this at your behest, right? Oh, that's right. I got this game as a birthday present for my little brother uh, earlier this year. And going through it, I really enjoyed the game and felt a deep connection to it. Um, I suggested it to Brian, who jumped on board for a little book club. Yeah, and so where do you play this? You played on the Switch? Uh, on Steam. Steam, okay, got it. I but played it on the Microsoft's Microsoft Game Pass for Windows, right? So they have that Xbox Game Pass for Windows, and I played it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Um, I really enjoyed uh, this game. It's definitely, like, the pitch sort of caught me off guard, a cozy management sim about death. Um, you know, <laughs> obviously that's, <laughs> that's not an elevator pitch you hear every day. No, there's not a lot of games out there dealing with the topic of death. Um I think because a lot of games, they tend to focus more on power fantasies, and death is the ultimate disempowerment. You you know, there's nothing after that. Yeah, it's true. Um, that is, it's sort of the, it's the end game, and a game about the end game is uh, is pretty interesting place to inhabit. Uh, this developer's had a few interesting titles. I haven't played their first title, Jotun. Uh, which they released in 2015, but I did play a bit of Sundered, which is sort of a Metroidvania randomized game that they put out uh, just a couple years back. And all of their games feature this this hand-drawn art style that we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, absolutely gorgeous, but this game definitely to me seems to be the most sort of cerebral of the bunch based on what I've seen. I'd agree with that. Um, I've just seen trailers for Sundered and Jotun, um, but like I said before about a lot of games being more power fantasy or having more violence in them, um, those two games seem to, you know, there, there were games with combat in them, which that's not, that's not a bad thing for a game to have. Um, but this is games that don't have violence in them are a lot more rare. And this certainly falls in that category. Yeah, I agree. It, it kind of. I was I was waiting for that turn to happen where, you know, all of a sudden you like have an encounter on your boat and you're like battling off uh you know, whatever comes aboard your ship, you are sailing around the afterlife. But um that never occurred. You know, every time there'd be a new event on the boat, uh which we'll talk about what happens uh, all over this the course of this game, none of it involved uh combat or violence of any kind really. And that was a standout um, aspect of this game. You know, I feel like we've played a couple nonviolent games this year, um, you know, uh, thinking to Journey, uh, which we just played a little bit ago. There's a, It's cool to play a game that sort of bucks the trend like that. Absolutely, absolutely. See what uh, video games can do when they kind of spread their wings a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, speaking of, maybe we should talk about what you are actually doing in this game at a, at a very high level, and then we can dive into the other aspects. Uh, in Spiritfarer, you play as the titular Spiritfarer Stella, accompanied by her pet cat, Daffodil, and uh, she takes over the job of Charon, the ferryman of the river sticks in, in myth, but in, in this um, game, it just the previous Spiritfarer who is the person in charge of finding wayward souls and helping them to uh, cross over to their final resting place. Like the game says, it's definitely about death. It puts it front and center. You're taking over the job as being the person to guide the recently departed souls to their final resting place. Yeah, the interesting thing to me is the story start of starts at the end, right? You... Uh, begin your journey at the Everdoor, sort of the gateway to the afterlife. And Charon is there with you, and he just sort of gifts you with the Everlight, which is basically your sort of all-purpose tool that denotes you as the, the spirit fairer, and then sends you on your way. I do want to bring up a couple of uh, warnings here before we get farther into this. This podcast is definitely going to feature some spoilers for what happens towards the end game. So if you want to get through this game yourself first, we recommend you do that before we uh, continue onwards and reveal this story to you. Uh, secondly, um, I mentioned I have a personal connection with this game. Uh, for the past three and a half years now, I've been working as a nurse in hospitals. And as the story eventually reveals, um, Stella is or was working as a palliative care nurse. And her job was to help patients die, um, but to do so comfortably, or comfortably instead of um, in pain or different things like that. So this job of hers as a spirit fairer is very much a continuation of the job she had in life. So we're going to be talking about some, some real topics during this podcast. Uh, just a forewarning. Yeah, it's it's very interesting how all of that sort of comes to light. The game is in my mind notoriously light on details and you really do have to do some legwork to piece the backstories of all of the characters together. Um, but when you do finally realize Stella's stake and all of this and what her uh, life was like and uh, you know before she passed, it really uh, puts all of the things that you've been doing for the last couple dozen hours in spirit fair is uh in quite a different light this is one of the games where the mechanics really play into the narrative and the theme of it uh but that's something i want to get into a little more later on yeah absolutely so maybe we start at the start uh, as i was saying right after you uh receive the everlight um you quickly get your first passenger um gwen who um, will give you some instructions and take you to your first ship. Yeah, the game has a very wonderful tutorial level. Um, you started this game with an interview with Charon where he's like, surprise, you're the new spirit fairer. I'm out of here. Um, and then you come up to this little island, which kind of introduces the three main mechanics of the game, I think, or the th thematic mechanics. You have um, an island to explore, on that island, you find your first spirit friend, uh, Gwen, and Gwen shows you this boat that you take out, and um, the boat becomes a mechanic of its own as well. 
Yeah, you're immediately asked to build the first room on the boat, which introduces the crafting mechanics that uh, also become central to the game in terms of progression and unlocking new areas, spirits, etc. There's a really nice loop that goes on in this game with all of these things. Um, basically, you find new areas to get resources for crafting and new spirits and characters. Those characters and spirits unlock new activities. Those activities give you new materials that you can use to craft new upgrades, and you get new areas as a result, and the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a pretty cool loop that the game puts you through, and it sounds very simplistic when I say it in a quick succession like that, but it's very elegant. Well, I think part of it, too, is that the storyline is very strong. I think the character writing on this game is definitely a huge strength of it. And part of the reason you want to advance, uh, get to the next area, get the next thing, build the next hut on your ship is so that you can learn more about the different spirits you're ferrying about. Yeah, and to see more of the uh, amazing art that is on display for this game and the animation of the, the various characters and um, creatures that you come across as you make your way through the, the afterlife. Uh, I think the animation on this game was top-notch. I really liked the art, but the animation on this was so smooth. Uh, just the interactions you had with your cat, Daffodil, I was pretty much immediately blown away by how high quality they were. Um, more like something I'd expect to see out of a feature film rather than a video game. Yeah, it is. It reminds me of a Ghibli film a little bit, uh, Studio Ghibli. But it um, it really is just amazingly endearing. Like you said, the cat, a daffodil that follows you around and sort of mimics you and helps you with all the various activities that you're doing. Like she gets on the other side of a two-person bandsaw as you're cutting down a tree. It's just, it's very cute and funny. Um, but they do indulge in long animations a bit much for me. I mean, at the end of the day, this is still a game and this is still a management sim where you're doing repetitive tasks. And by the end of the smelting minigame for the 50th time, I was like, stop penalizing me with, with waiting. Um, <laughs> so they, they might indulge a bit much. In Hold that. that thought until later on. I've got some thoughts on the repetitiousness of it. Sure. Uh, but animations, amazing. It is. Uh, they're definitely, they're well done. They're pretty, like I said, maybe a bit self-indulgent at times, but um, they do uh, they do keep you wanting to see more. And the art of not only the animations, but the various islands that you visit is extremely gorgeous as well. It's all hand-drawn. Uh, they're varied. Uh, in the beginning, I thought they would be sort of samey after the first couple looked relatively similar, but by the end of the various islands that you explore, you're seeing all kinds of different things, and you're seeing dragons in the sea that give you metals and giant turtles that give you resources. And there's just a, a lot of variety out there in the, the great sea of the afterlife. Yeah, um, towards that point, you're kind of in one of four zones. I think there's four zones, right? That sounds right. Yeah, there's four different zones in the game, and at the beginning you have only access to the first one. Uh, which is kind of like a, almost a Japanese, Asian-inspired art style. Mm -hmm. um, but what I heard about later on, they have an art book for this game that reveals a lot of the backstory for it, but that each of these zones corresponded to a different phase of Stella's life. Oh, that's interesting. And if you're, if, I, I read those backstories you're talking about on a wiki, and I didn't piece that together from just reading through those, but that makes total sense. 
but there, yeah, there's a very good, there's good variety to them in the end. The four different zones are very distinct from each other visually, uh, aesthetic wise, and all of them look gorgeous. Yeah, and I like the 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 fact that you know your your primary mode of getting around this world is your boat. You chart a course. It takes you on this map through these various zones you're talking about, and through uh, various events. Uh, that can take place on and in between those islands. Uh, so you might run into a swarm of uh, light or lightning jellyfish that will, you know, uh, move across the map. And this is where I thought my first combat encounter was coming for sure. And then, hmm. um, no, you just run into them and they like pop and give you a little ball of light, and that's a resource that you need to gather, uh, which I thought was was cool. Um, and they, there's a lot of different ones of those, and there's always sort of some motivation to go and get them because they're going to net you some new materials to craft with. And you're going to get to mm-hmm. hear some of the awesome music, uh, too, which is completely dynamic, a thematic score, and kind of gorgeous top to bottom. Now, when you say the music's dynamic, what do you mean by that? I mean, like, when you're sailing out in the ocean and you go from clear seas to the icy area or then into a thunderstorm, it'll quickly adjust um, and, you know, ensure that you're getting music appropriate to what is going on on the screen. And it kind of nails it every single time. I know we'll we'll talk okay. a little more about some of the more affecting scenes with the characters, but each character also has their own theme, it's worth saying. And uh, each area has its own theme as well um it's a pretty involved score and the composer uh, max ll he goes by is a a very accomplished composer who's done films commercials and games Uh, he seems to be sort of the house composer for thunder lotus which uh lucky them because he's clearly very talented So you were talking about these event mini games that they have going on, catch the jellyfish or um, catch the lightning bolts, the meteorites, uh, chase the shadows around. Um, what these mini games have you do, they have you using mobility on your boat. And that might sound like it's not a whole lot, but it's kind of its own mechanic because your boat is, I think the best way to describe it is a whole ramshackle town. Um, You kind of have this big barge and you have this large area to place these buildings, all of them with a unique shape that doesn't necessarily fit well with the others. I'd say, as a matter of fact, they are purposefully made to not fit well with each other. (laughs) They certainly are. They certainly are. Uh, So you have like these houses on stilts that you decide where they get placed. And based off of that, when you're going through these different events, based mini games, which I think there's one for every character and there's um how many spirits are there? Ten, twelve? There's a there's a good number out there. Yeah. Um the each of these mini games is asking you to navigate this mess that you created, uh, which I lovingly call my little ramshackle town on the boat. Yeah, I, I thought of it as my own little Doctor Seuss town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's asking you to navigate that in a very specific way. And the different ways it asks you to navigate that um 
give the game some uh, good replay value even within runs because as you're going through the game you're adding new huts to the uh to your to your ship and you're having to rearrange the layout so even if you do the same event the the jellyfish event or the lightning event um it's very likely that your ship will have changed in the meantime it's also worth noting that there's a day night cycle at play here so as you're uh, navigating the ocean, uh, day will break and night will come. And at some point, your character will it'll be too dark to navigate and you have to go to sleep before your uh, voyage can continue. And I love how when you go to sleep, it zooms out showing you your entire ramshackle ship, like you said, and reminding you of all the things you forgot to do that day. <laughs> I guess some people, were, I, I was a little more thorough, maybe, about <laughs> taking my... Um, T- taking my fried fish out of the oven before night fell. <laughs> no, if there was a such thing as a fire hazard on this boat, I would have burned it down a dozen times over. <laughs> Thank goodness for ghost ships. Yeah, there's lots of things you can do on the ship, uh, many of which I forgot to do, as I was saying. Uh, you can cook, and each character on the boat needs their own specific uh, food, or rather, one specific food they dislike in most cases. Um, there's... No, they have their they have a favorite food, they have foods they like and they have foods they dislike. And right. you got to kind of learn each of them. Yeah, so so as we were saying there's cooking, there's a foundry where you can smelt ore, there's a um a loom where you can weave uh, yarn, there's a farm, a garden and orchards, three different modes of producing plants which I thought was a little bit overkill, but also sort of helped build out the the ramshackle nature of the boat. And you can mm-hmm. sort of start a mini Stardew Valley farm on this boat with, you know, sheep and cows, and then you can go fishing off the back. Mm-hmm. The Each of these is kind of almost a one-button mini game, um, which adds some good variety to the game. Uh, you know, they aren't all strictly one-button, but it's that kind of level of simplicity. Uh, very much timing-based sort of challenges to go through. Um, and I think they do a good job. Like when you are working with simple pine logs and trying to get those into pine boards, then it's pretty simple going to the sawmill, but going through later on, it, uh, you know, they mix things up a little bit. Yeah. I don't know about you, Josh, but I think the one there's things I liked about these mini games and things I didn't. One thing that I did like is that if you do them well, you get extra materials, right? It's like a bonus for good performance, but if you Mm -hmm. fail, the only thing that happens is you get penalized with waiting. And as I said, you know, they were already indulgent in some of these animations, but when you, you say overdraw your hammer and, you know, your character recoils as they, you know, the Everlight explodes out of their hand, you're just penalized with waiting. And if there's one thing I don't like, it's being penalized with waiting. I'm an impatient boy. Like when I first started playing this game, I loved doing the mini games, but I kind of did them to a point where I was bored with them. Hmm. Um, But I still needed to do them to advance in the game. Uh, So I feel like when you play this game, definitely pursue the story up front um, because the game expects you to do these tasks, not standalone but on the way to doing other things yeah by the end of this game i did kind of want to factorio everything into like automated wood production and automated smelting and all of that stuff but alas uh, no such system exists um however Mm -hmm. uh 
one thing they did do very well in this game, from my opinion, is the inventory system. You are getting just a ton of stuff in this game, and there's no limit on your inventory. Everything's um, cordoned off into its own nice little tab folder within your inventory you can access by pressing the, the top button on your controller, and it just works. It's easy to navigate, it's easy to use, and I didn't ever have a problem with it. And that's, you know, not always the case with a game with a ton of different um, different things you can gather like this. I think this is one of Stardew Valley's weaknesses, in my opinion, actually, compared to this game. Hmm. How so? Just that there's too much uh, inventory micromanagement in Stardew? Yeah, there's, I mean, I get that there's, that's like sort of a thing that they're trying to instill in you, sort of a sense of realism with the, the limited inventory, but it's a clunkier and slower moving than this inventory where it's more contextual with how it chooses to interact. Like you can give a character an item, but that is just, uh, the give button is just one thing. You don't have to go into the inventory and navigate to the thing you want to give. You give first and then navigate to the thing, which is a small nit to pick, but it's a lot easier to do. Just a side tangent right here. Um, there's games like Resident Evil 2. We played that and it was a very specific about its inventory management and about you not having enough space. So you had to make decisions about your inventory there. Um, Stardew, you know, I've, I I think one of, I, at least the first thing that comes to mind for me talking about its inventory management is not having enough space there too. Um, and I remember you saying that I think you liked the inventory stuff in Resident Evil 2. I could be making that up. I think I think you're right, but that's because that's a different type of game. That's a survival sim where resource intensity or resource intensive gathering and saving and ensuring you have enough on hand to get through the task is a key part of the gameplay. In this one, it isn't, right? So if you're adding that in, it's just creating friction. It's not adding anything to um, what you're trying to get out of the, the game's mechanics. I like that. I like that explanation. Um, so as we talk about, what are you gathering all of these mechanics for anyway? And in large part, it's to upgrade your boat. Uh, as I mentioned before, you get access to new areas by upgrading your, your ship, your boat. Uh, you get new breakers on the front of the boat to break through ice and rocks. You get a fog lamp to help you navigate through that. You can upgrade the size of your boat to hold additional spirits and build additional buildings. So all of that is to say that um, you can get all of these uh, resources for a variety of things, cooking, building things, but also upgrades. Uh, upgrades are sort of a key part of this game's progression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are the ways you unlock a larger boat. Um, and, you know, you turn your tiny ramshackle town into a ramshackle city. Um, <laughs> they are the ways you uh, advance to new zones where you get new spirits and you get new... Um, new things to craft new resources as well, um, adding twists onto the by now familiar crafting minigames. And new abilities for Stella. One of the interesting things I thought about this is that there's the resource gathering, like you go to an island and you chop down a tree, but there's also the resource gathering, the currency you kind of get from your spirit friends as well. When a spirit joins your boat, 
you get, um, I think it's called an obol. It's a coin that you can use to upgrade your movement abilities. Um, And then when the spirit departs via the Evador, then they give you a spirit flower, which you use to upgrade the zones you can go to. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, it's worth mentioning uh, off the front that the uh, the main you, you are doing sort of light platforming all the time when you're moving around your ship. Josh mentioned this when we were talking about the mini games that you do while you're on your boat. So you get your double jump. Uh, you eventually get an air dash. Um, yeah, you get these sort of mechanical upgrades as you would in like maybe a normal Metroidvania or something like that. Um, but uh, the the interesting thing is, as you said, how they tie it to the to progression with the characters. Um, they're kind of ensuring that you're doing the critical path with at least a character or two before you're moving on. Absolutely. One thing I want to quickly add on about that, um, I mentioned that you get kind of you get some progression when a spirit joins and when a spirit leaves your boat. And I think that kind of staggered progression is useful in maintaining a forward sense of momentum. Um, If you got like both a movement upgrade and a zone upgrade at the end of when a spirit leaves, um, that's a little more to wait in between um, progression as opposed to getting it at the beginning and the end. I think that was a good move. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think there is some pacing issues at the beginning of this game from my perspective, but all in all, once you're you know rocking and rolling after your first couple of spirits, um, it goes down pretty smooth, and it's because they dole out those uh, upgrade uh, resources from the characters at regular intervals. Um, I mentioned that I kind of did the mini games over much at the beginning, just kind of exploring around and trying to upgrade my boat as opposed to trying to... Um, get the spirits, get them moving on. Um, So I feel like there was a kind of a pacing lull at the end of zone one. Um, I was wondering, did you come across the same thing? I did, yeah. I I definitely noticed that. I think the game, after you acquire your first three spirits, just sort of opens up and says, all right, now you've got all this room to run around and explore. And to your point, Josh, you can spend that time gathering those initial resources but you should what you should really be doing is focusing on the quests to advance the relationships with your spirits because you will get those other resources uh, as part of those quests but also because you're going to hit the bottleneck of needing to close out the spirit quests to get the upgrade to move to the next area far sooner than you will exhaust what you can upgrade on your boat right Okay, so it wasn't, you also hit that kind of bottleneck. I did, yeah. It was one of those things where when I realized what I needed to do to get to the next area, you know, the next part of the map, I immediately shifted my priorities. And so I I minimized that lull probably a little more than it sounds like you did. But it definitely was one of those things where it felt like, oh, I've been focusing on the wrong thing. And the game didn't really message that as well as maybe it could have to me. So let's talk a little bit about the spirits. You meet a wide variety of characters on the ship. Yeah, so, uh, you know, initially it's just you, and you quickly come across Gwen, who is sort of a deer uh, spirit. Uh, It's worth noting that at the beginning, all the spirits that you come across are sort of a sort of journey character shrouded husk of a person, and then when they come aboard your vessel... 
they sort of awaken into an animal form. And Gwen, the first person you encounter and a childhood friend of Stella's, is the form of a deer. Um, Not just a childhood friend, but a very close friend of Stella's throughout her lifetime. And Gwen helps you get started, tells you about, hey, this is what life is like here in the spirit world, and kind of um, acts as a tutorial spirit in some ways. Yeah, she uh, apparently was also sort of part of an upper class family. At some point, you take her to like her rich parents' house equivalent in the afterlife. It was at this point for me that I realized that part of my job was sort of revisiting aspects of my fair's pasts and helping them, you know, deal with that and work through the memories of the the before times, you know, real life that are keeping them from, from passing on. A big part of the game's emotional impact comes from learning about these spirits, learning about their past, their connections with you, because all of them have connections with you. The first few more specifically than the latter ones, in my opinion. Like Atul the Frog, who is actually Stella's uncle. You know, this is actually a blood relative. Um, I found that to be interesting. And while they, they seem to get less and less specific with regards to what their relationship to Stella was, but that kind of makes sense. I mean, Stella saw a lot of people that were dying in her life, and some of them she remembers very well, some of them were close to her, and some of them not so much. I'm not sure if this is in the art book or maybe in the in-game dialogue, but uh, some of these people were patients she encountered as a um, as, as a palliative care nurse, uh, and some of them were people who died before she got into that career. Like, I think Summer, the snake, the um, the granola-crunching snake lady. Yeah, the hippie snake. Uh, she was the inspiration for Stella to become a palliative care nurse. So she was a close family friend beforehand. Um, but uh, you're seeing both people from Stella's professional career who are generally unattached to her personally... Uh, but there are patients who affected her greatly. Um, and you're also seeing people from her personal lifetime, which maybe led up to that decision to become a palliative care nurse. Yeah, you mentioned Summer the Snake. I thought her story arc was really interesting, where she talks about how you know she was such a, as we, you said, sort of a crunchy granola hippie and loves gardening. And she's the one that teaches you how to um, you know, have your garden on the boat. But then... Her events are all about these dragons on the uh, on the sea who are corrupted. And they have this sort of cancerous mineral growth on their heads that you, of course, mine for more materials. But that's beside mm-hmm. the fact. Um, the interesting thing with that is it sort of speaks to a corruption, which is eventually how she ended up going. It was uh, through cancer because she worked with uh, noxious chemicals that sort of poisoned the land, which she was charged with. You know, helping make fertile, I think, is part of her job. Now, I know she used to be kind of an industrial agricultural chemist who kind of renounced that for more of the natural style over there. Um, but maybe you saw something I didn't or I'm not remembering it. Did you see that she got the cancer specifically from the chemical she was working with? Or because I thought it was just like she did this before and she renounced it, but then she got cancer. I didn't know if the cancer was caused by the chemicals or not. That might be true. I might be reading too much into that or taking wiki as gospel, which is always a uh, <laughs> always a, a risk when you're trolling the fandom wiki for a given game. 
Uh, I will say that I think that with Summer was one of the times I realized that the um, there's a bit more metaphor to the events that were going on. Um, and it took a little while, but the kind of the second dragon that she faces, because um, you face a dragon first to get like some nickel ore that you mine quartz. off of the... Quartz. Okay, you, to get some quartz off of the dragon. Um, but the second dragon event is called the metastatic coil, which is supposed to represent uh, the... Like, Summer had cancer, and there was remission, but then there was a reoccurrence of it later on. And it's that kind of coil tightening around, but literally tightening around her organs is, and uh, blood circulation would be what had happened. Um, but I thought it was, that was when I, the kind of moment I looked at it and realized, like, wow, this is, I've been reading this one way, and there's a whole nother level over here. Yeah, the game definitely rewards a close read and keeping an open mind with, you know, regards to theme and metaphor. Um, it's not light on that. And, you know, I think the fact that you're journeying through this sort of sunken world where um, everyone's, you know, in a shroud and a lot of the places are sort of broken down and, you know, in disrepair, There's, it's working on a lot of different levels to sort of sell the idea of this purgatory that you're in and talk about how the various people inhabiting it are, you know, trying to either make it work or get through it. What are some of the other memorable characters for you? Yeah, I think one of my favorites was uh, Astrid, the Lynx. You initially encounter her. She's like organizing a union strike at a factory in the afterlife, which I'm like, wow, this is a, a real go-getter <laughs> of a dead person right here. Um, she's definitely one of the more forceful um, spirits that you come across. She's very you know, assertive. She... Uh, has a relationship with another spirit that you end up picking up, Giovanni, uh, who's sort of a scar from the Lion King-looking lion and a serial philanderer. So <laughs> there's some mm -hmm. interesting stuff going on between those two, and I think the interplay between them is one of the more memorable spirit uh, relationships, you know, the, the sort of interplay not only between those two but between Stella and each of them was really memorable to me. I think it's uh, good to mention here that there is an important quest line between the two uh, of those Astrid and Giovanni where you can try to reconcile them or you can kind of um, you can kind of be like, look, Giovanni's cheating on you again over here. You got to get over that to Astrid because Giovanni is someone you you go on a long quest for and eventually pick up. But uh, Astrid is with you first. And I definitely say she's the more sympathetic of the two characters. She is. Giovanni's an interesting character, but at the end of the day, he is kind of an unfaithful carpe diem, kind of a suave douchebag. But, um, you know, he's he's definitely sort of fun to be around and he gets you a tiki bar for your boat. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm glad I got to uh, have him on my crew even for a little bit. But yeah, definitely not a good influence, I'd say. I think it's good to point out here that even the kind of um, less sympathetic characters like Giovanni, who has some morals 
or ethics that you or my you or I might disagree with. Um, they are still presented kind of as a full character over here. You get you get a, his backstory about how he um, he used to fight in the resistance in World War Two in uh, France and kind of the stuff he's had to go through over there and how that's informed his care his character's worldview. And it's not one that I agree with myself. But it's not like they're just writing villains over here. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. There's there's not a single like black or white character in this entire thing. Everyone sort of is a fully formed person with good aspects and bad aspects, except maybe Stanley, who is sort of just unbridled joy. But he is a child, so it comes mm-hmm. with the territory. Mm-hmm. One of the really interesting ones to me is actually a duo, Bruce and Mickey, um, who are, take the form of a hummingbird and a gigantic ox um and the hummingbirds actually just sort of carrying around this silent ox as they uh they make their way around the boat and mickey's the one that's doing all of the the speaking uh, he's just sort of you know using bruce as his muscle and such an interesting difference between these two characters and everyone else you're getting because i know we'll talk about the music soon but the music for this game is generally like uh, when Liz walked in seeing me play it, she called it spa music, right? It's very, like, calm and airy. And then Bruce and Mickey have this, like, pounding bass, like, these two are fucking gangsters. <laughs> and it's really <laughs> funny how different the music is. And it also just fits them so well because it's, like, got this huge, like, deep horn and then a tiny, like, sort of woodwind, high-pitched, like, maybe it's a piccolo or something like that. Or not a piccolo, but a... Uh, um, a clarinet of some sort and it's just awesome and fits these two so well i'm glad they deviated from the sort of style of the composition for for these two because they are a departure from everyone else on the boat in so many ways So at the end of uh, all of the various character arcs that you go through with uh, uh, whoever you have on your boat, the various spirits you pick up on your journey, the goal is to bring them to the Everdor. Uh, The Everdor is where you started your journey. It serves as sort of a a gateway between uh, where you are now in the afterlife and uh, whatever lies beyond that. If, If you're in purgatory, think of it as the gateway to heaven, I guess. Yeah, this is the final resting place or... Um, where the spirit world, or at least that spirit world, sort of ends. And I think it's a very good way to kind of um, to kind of represent the dying of these people, uh, their, I guess, the death process, because the spirits go there and they cease to exist afterwards. Um, and they know that it's coming, at least in most cases there. On the way to the Everdor, you take each spirit by a small rowboat, and they give you a little monologue about themselves as a character, and some of them are ready to go, some of them less so, but you get to get a, a good character backstory or a good bit of character story during these trips where you kind of see how they face the Everdor. Yeah, the interesting thing about this portion to me is you're given a lot of time for this. It's maybe like a couple minutes, and some of it is talking, like you said, but a lot of it's silence, which I think um, is 
it's there for a reason, right? They, they're not going to fill all of this time of this awkward you literally ferrying them to their death with chatter. They're going to let you soak in that moment, hear the, the music, uh, again, the gorgeous uh, soundtrack of Max LL coming through. Uh, and it's, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, like there, some of these, uh, definitely choked me up a little bit as they approached the door for their final departure. You could sort of feel the tightness in your throat. Oh, for sure. Very emotional scenes for sure. Uh, like I said earlier, these characters are extremely well written. You've gotten to know them before the past, I don't know, five, ten hours as they've been hanging out on your boat and you've been doing quests for them, uh, fill, fulfilling their requests um, as, as you're going through the world. Uh, so you definitely establish a connection with them. Uh, very tight writing on this game for sure. Yeah, and after all the hugs and all of the food given and all of the quests completed, the music swells and the character rises into the air and they disappear in a flash of light. And then come the tears. This game, the Everdor is not just for the characters you're ferrying about. Um, it's also for Stella herself. She will eventually be going to the Everdor and rising up and disappearing into that oblivion. Um, but the ending was a very touching scene. Um, I mean, I cried for this for sure. Uh, but before you leave for the Everdor... Um, you see the ghosts of all of your spirit passengers. Uh, the ghosts come along and they give you one last hug uh, before you board that rowboat. The rowboat, you know, you've taken plenty of passengers on, but this time you're the you're the only passenger on that boat. You take that and you head to the door yourself. Yeah, the callback to the hug is really it's really was quite affecting. Um, we didn't mention up top, but you have a few different ways you can interact with your crewmates with the feeding and the quests, but you're also always given the option to just give them a hug. And some of them seem initially taken aback by that, and then they just sort of embrace it. Um, some of them are initially very standoffish, but, you know, showing that care uh, to the, the members of your crew is part of what helps them make the journey to their eventual destination. And that was a really... Uh, affecting thing to see sort of returned to you at the end of the game when all of that care that you've been putting out in the world comes back. No, oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that that last scene, I, I hear you, it made me cry too. The music did the heavy lifting for me. I'm a sucker for like a swelling score and, um, you know, one final uh, look up at the lights before everything goes dark. This game stuck the landing is <laughs> how we've, we've put it before, and I'll, I'll say it again for this one.
So Stella is a palliative care nurse. She spends her days caring for others at the end of their life. And that's a lot of what you're doing in the game. Um, this was one of the games that didn't come together for me until afterwards. Uh, we talked a lot before about the crafting mini games, about how they're, they're, there's a lot of repetitiveness in those mini games. Um, there's a lot of waiting. You need a lot of patience to get through them. Um, but the kind of thing that got me afterwards that I didn't realize till after is that the reason you're doing a lot of that crafting is to build a new house for the spirit that's coming along on your boat to uh, build some fancy decorations for them that help make the patient that help make the spirit more comfortable along the way. I was going to say, initially, it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that the main goal of all of these spirits was home improvement. But when you put it like that, realizing that it was all in service of the comfort of them as they made their final journey, it makes a lot more sense. As a nurse, I've dealt with a lot of end-of-life care, certainly a whole lot more than I've dealt with before I became a nurse. Um, but there's, it rang very true with me that a lot of what you're doing with the end of the life care is you're trying to make the patient more comfortable. You're trying to ease their passage towards the next towards the next phase, whatever that may be, even if it's just coming to terms with their death, uh, which I think is very well mirrored. I mean, um, you're talking about in the spirit world, everybody's died already but there's a kind of second death that happens with the Everdor that works very well as a metaphor as a symbol or what have you um, you're getting people to come to terms with their second passing or their final passing and you're making them more comfortable along the way you're doing this kind of repetitive stuff sometimes even tedious stuff um, but you're doing it for the person and I think this game succeeds because the character writing is strong enough that it makes you care about them, it makes you want to do this stuff for them. Yeah, it's it's the difference between death and accepting death, right? You can die before having accepted that you're dying or that you've died. And this game writes these characters and makes you experience um, how they're coping with the fact that they are now dead and need to reconcile with what happened in their life and where they're at now that, uh, you know, it's deeply affecting and it, it puts you in their shoes and it puts you in Stella's shoes as the person that needs to help them through that. And it does a very good job of that. Uh, like I said, or like I mentioned before, the kind of mechanics of it play into the theme uh, or to the narrative payoff of it that you are making these spirits more comfortable as they are on their journey to the Everdor. Um, whether or not they realize they're going to the Everdor or they want to admit they're going to the Everdor, that is their destination. Once I realized that, it kind of shed the game, or shed a whole new light on the game, uh, made it a very different experience in retrospect. Whereas before, some of the things... I was seen as repetitive and tedious. I kind of drew I drew them back to 
things I've done on the job as a nurse in patients who are, you know, in their final hours, um, helping them come to terms with what's happening when possible. Uh, I guess part of the thing about that, though, uh, I also kind of want to talk a little bit about what I felt this game missed. I don't, I don't know if this is quite the right word to use, but I haven't thought about it. Or I haven't thought of a new or a better word for it. But there's a violence towards the end of life. Um, that I think this game kind of elides over and romanticizes past. Yeah, I mean, I think I hear you in that this game sort of allows everyone to come to terms with their death, right? It's it it gives everyone that second chance to have the death they want instead of the death that is forced upon them by their circumstances in real life. Mhm. Yeah, um for sure. There's everyone's I guess the the biggest thing I've seen is it with the exception of Alice, who is going through a sort of dementia or, or Alzheimer's and is having some memory loss. And even she's kind of granted a moment where she realizes what she's going through and says it's time to time to get off over here. Time to get off the ship right here. Time to go for the Everdor. Um, there's, there's been a lot of patients I've been with who don't have that moment of clarity about that and i feel this game was definitely trying to be a very cozy game definitely trying to tug out the heartstrings i think it's extremely effective at what it sets out to do but i also think it's missing out on some of the rougher aspects of being a palliative care nurse or being a hospice nurse or just being a nurse in general or just dying I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't think this game would have quite as much mass appeal if you were dealing with the most grisly aspects of, you know, passing on, but sort of cuts down the experience of acting as a palliative care nurse. That's also Stella's previous life. She's not a palliative care nurse in this game. She's a spirit fairer. And while that's not a real thing in real life, it is in this game. And Maybe maybe the lesson to take from this game is it's examining on how people want to die. Um, and if you can take away from this game something that will allow you to put yourself in a situation to pass in a more graceful manner instead of a more violent manner, as you put it, then um, maybe that's an accomplishment that this game uh, can put in its cap. I would agree with that. It's well observed that the differences between being a spirit fair and a palliative care nurse. <laughs> um, but, you know, the fact that this game inspired us to have this conversation in the first place is remarkable because you're not going to have a ton of um, discussions in depth on video games that are going to make you consider the roles that caregivers that shepherd people through their dying moments uh, experience. One of the things, too, that. Um... Again, this was more of a retrospective thing looking back on the game. One of the the way I interpret the ending for this game is that this was kind of um, a dying fantasy of Stella 
mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. she was going through cancer herself and going through the that end of life process. This uh, is how I would do it if everything went perfectly. I do think, like uh, again, with with hindsight, like it's a very powerful message too. Um, the way Stella's kind of whether it's a metaphor for her life, uh, which, you know, uh, or this is actually happening or whatever. And I think there's the way I kind of read it is that it's a mixture of both, uh, but that the care you give for others is reflected back on you. Um, like that, the last scene where Stella herself is going to the Everdor, um, which is, you know, this is like, 24 hours after she accepted the job as spirit fair her 24 hours in player time but several days for her oh yeah i suppose so um but like this is you know she hasn't been taking this job for centuries like charon has presumably been doing since the days of greek myth Um, so (laughs) i read this as her kind of um dying hallucinations or visions or what have you as she's going on to whatever is next. She has seen herself, and she has seen herself as a shepherd. Use that word earlier, which is one I agree with. She's a shepherd for these souls as they are moving on. But that that care that she gave them, the, the love, the attention, um, all of that is reflected back at her. Those spirits are there waiting for her. They are there to hug you where you as you have been the one who have been giving all the hugs throughout the game and you give a good bit of hugs in this game (laughs) they're there to hug you as you are coming back and i guess sort of the message that the lessons you learned from the patience you have helped go onwards stick with you towards the very end and help you prepare for moving onwards yourself that was a a very affecting message for me yeah instead of uh her life flashing before her eyes her her afterlife flashed before her eyes and uh she brought all of the lessons that her long life of care had given her and uh allowed her to make that final transition uh to peaceful rest i think a lot of the spirits were doing reflections on their life and finding purpose and Stella early on found her purpose as being that shepherd towards the next stage and the game and those final moments reflect that very well I think that's all we can say on that. Uh, Why don't we try and sum up this deluge of feelings with a three-word review? All right. For me, uh, my three-word review for Spiritfarer is A Bittersweet Voyage. A game that bills itself as being about death can easily become morose, but the experience of playing Spiritfarer was more consistently uplifting to me than depressing. It was a reminder of how precious life is and all of its unpredictability and messiness. It's a reminder to take time to be grateful for those you've known, loved, and lost. And one of my favorite things about Spiritfarer is the fact that while there was a fast travel system on that map, I almost never used it. There was so much to be done on the way to where I was going. 
It's an apt metaphor for life. Don't rush to try and get where you're going. Enjoy the voyage, long though it may be, in all of its bittersweet glory. Ah, uh, this game was a big thumbs up for me. Um, I do have my three-word review. My initial three-word review for this was Better Animal Crossing. Um, <laughs> I played some Animal Crossing uh, with the new Switch as well, version as well. Uh, but this game just seemed to tie things together better for me. Uh, the mini games, the resource gathering, the getting to know the spirits, like everything was just... There's more of a purpose to it than I found at Animal Crossing. So if you liked Animal Crossing, you will certainly like this uh, game. Just bring some tissues along. However, my final um, final three-word review for this was Gently Unto Oblivion. Um, this game was very much about coming term- to terms with death. And like Brian said, facing death the way you want to face it. Um, and you get to experience that through the dozen or so different characters who you take to the Everdoor. And then finally, with Stella herself, the um, final character that you go to the Everdoor and you look up at the light and then there's the game. Um, very much an emotional voyage. Uh, but very much a worthwhile one. Absolutely. A hearty recommendation for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care. And really, take care. And keep on gaming. Blowing through the seas of time Memories that were left behind Bring us closer to the end of this journey Yeah, so you you mentioned Better Animal Crossing. I was trying to come up with a play on crossing, like Animal Crossing Over or (laughs) Animal Crossing Into the Afterlife, and I just couldn't make it work. But um, yeah, there's definitely some some parallels here between Animal Crossing and and this game. Obviously, the animals in sort of a, um, you know, community environment being the main thing. But I think it's interesting that Animal Crossing sort of introduces sort of a strangeness to make it interesting, whereas this game introduced, like, a fascination with death and dying. Um, obviously, it's two different ways to make cute animal a, a, a more compelling thing than, like, the probably just a child's toy offering it would be initially. Uh, I think so. Um, I don't know. I've never been a huge fan of Animal Crossing. I know the game, you know, it does... It, it, it makes bajillions of dollars and all that, and people love it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, 
But, but there's a reason for that, right? It's not just because it's cute. It's because it's cute and quirky and like very quirky. Like there's some weird shit in that game. But <laughs> I do like um, their puns, I will say that. They've got plenty Yeah, there's of puns. Them. There's like a soft critique on capitalism going on and it's it's interesting. Um but, you know, critiques on capitalism or um shepherding spirits to their death, you know. You have to throw some sort of curveball in there to make cute animals interesting. Uh, sorry, cute animals, you're just not going to cut it on your own. <laughs> I mean, I would agree with you about uh, about it being an Animal Crossing-ish game, uh, but I don't think it's because of the cute animals. There's a lot of games with cute animals that were very much <laughs> not Animal Crossing, like Banjo-Kazooie. Things were very cute in that <laughs> yeah. game. Uh, oh, yeah, I was being reductive, but I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> like It's more, I don't know, I feel like Cozy Game is a genre that didn't exist very, or at least not as much in the gamer consciousness five years ago um yeah w- would you say like all of the harvest moons and like stardew and stuff would fall into that I- i've heard these called slow life games cozy game might be like the new iteration of what that is yeah i would call those games cozy games but um i wouldn't think that those are the extent of it it's i think it's more like a feeling than a set of game mechanics but yeah it's like a cozy game's more of a feeling it's uh not like it's, there's not necessarily combat for you to overcome uh almost more of a meditative experience sometimes uh and different games will do that like the gathering resources in, in animal crossing versus spirit fair is a va- vastly different thing because in spirit fair there's like that purpose i was talking about about trying to make someone more comfortable uh, whereas Animal Crossing, you're trying to build your town up or whatever you're trying to do. Um, but it's just kind of like this non-violent sort of thing. I have that game, uh, Moondrop Mountain, I'm working on right now that I'm trying to capture that same sort of feeling with. Like, uh, it's trying to be that crossover between Stardew Valley and um, a roguelike. But one of the design constraints I've set for myself is that there's no combat in the game whatsoever. Um, to mm-hmm. try to capture that cozy-ish feel, feel. You can't have cozy combat. Not necessarily so, no. <laughs> I mean, um, you can have cozy competition, but combat just implies... It implies a lot more violence than... <laughs> I don't know if you can call it like a cozy melee brawl or something like that. You yeah, know? yeah. Co- cozy violence strikes me as an oxymoron, even though it isn't necessarily a direct one. It's pretty pretty direct, I think. You can have cute violence, maybe like some Tom and Jerry cartoon, but cozy, I don't know about that. But I think there's yeah, a lot of games yeah. that are trying to like uh, express this feeling. I remember watching that um, GDC talk on Journey by the, I think it's the head designer. Do you know what, Chen? Um, he talked about how games, you know, they don't try to go after the entire spectrum of human emotion. And I feel cozy games are trying to reach into... They're breaking into the other half of that pie graph, yeah. Not other half. And I I know the pie graph you're talking about. Not necessarily the other half, but an unexplored sector of emotions and human... humanness. Yeah, the entire human experience. Not just the one that people discover when they go to war. (laughs) 